Hey, good morning. Good to see all of you. <laughs> I always feel like it's like the little stage hands kind of working around, but all of you can see it. You know what I mean? Like if we were in a bigger place, it'd be different, but like, I can see what you're all doing. But hopefully that recap was a helpful kind of reminder of where we've been. And uh, it's funny because with, with kind of this two-service rhythm we're trying out for the next couple of weeks, uh, first service is kind of this time pressure, right? There's this crunch because you're all coming for second. I don't feel that anymore. I don't feel that today. So I'm just letting you know, like, settle in for the next at least 2.5 hours. It's going to be a great uh, sermon. You're going to love every bit of it, I promise. That's a joke, in case you've never been here. That's a total joke, bad joke, sarcasm. Uh, but my name is John. If we've not got the chance to meet yet, I get to serve as a pastor around here. Uh, if you're brand new, again, thank you for taking a step, for being courageous and bold and going to a brand new place that's sandwiched between a nail salon and a dog groomer. You may be the crazy one, not us. Uh, but I'm really, really thankful that you're here. I'm very grateful for that. And it's funny because I was talking about this with some people earlier. Like, you, every single week, at least for the last almost five years, I, I get up on a stage like this and I share not only God's word, but typically about my own life. So you know the places I like to eat. You know the weird quirks I have. You know how I approach parenting. You know who I'm married to and what that's like. And, and the reality is, even though I know most of you decently, uh, there's still things about you I don't know like that. And so it's kind of an unfair advantage you have because literally every Sunday you, you keep coming back to hear me talk about that. But one of the things you may not have known is that I have worn glasses for pretty much my whole life. So when I was in first grade, uh, my, my mom figured out by some very kind, gracious teacher saying, hey, your son cannot color in any of the lines. <laughs> like, that, that, he's in first grade. He should start to figure some of that stuff out. And we figured out quickly with an eye test. I had terrible eyesight, so we went and got glasses. And uh, did you know that only 35% of people have 20-20 vision? So actually, a good chunk of us in this room uh, have impaired vision on some level. Maybe it just needs to be corrected, uh, but for some of us, that's a reality. Some of us have worn glasses for as long as we can remember like me. Do you know that 2 million people a year have eye surgery in the U.S. alone? Like, that's a lot of people that, that you bump into or maybe have known. Did you also know that Israel and the USA have the best eyesight in the world? I don't know why that is, but it is. Uh, did you know that Tanzania has the worst eyesight in the world? I don't know why that is, but it just is. Like, uh, it's fascinating to me. Like, even when we had Lennon, our nine-month-old, one of the very first things he wanted to figure out was, what color eyes are you going to have? What color eyes are you going to have? So I have green. Lindsay has kind of hazel brown. And, and so we're trying to figure out, is it going to be one of those? Is it going to be some unique concoction of the two that mankind has never seen? So we did what any smart parents would do, we went to Google. So we went google.com and we kind of create this diagram. We figure out like the whole Punnett square thing. Like some of you have probably done this, right? Where you figure out what your family had, what her family had and combine them. And at the end, it's supposed to spit out like the highest probability eyesight that or eye color she's going to have. Well, it turns out she has like one of the lowest ones and somehow that 12% that she'd have blue, high, blue eyes, she has blue eyes. So our daughter's a miracle in case you're wondering. She is a modern medical miracle. Uh, it's incredible. So they're like blue. We're hoping by about a year where they kind of lock in that they maybe will stay. We'll see. But it's very, it's very captivating to even find out how that whole process goes. And as someone who's worn glasses, I have a particular interest in eyesight and vision. But here's what's interesting. You look at any of our spiritual journey, any of our spiritual life, and how we see God really, really matters. 
not just how we see things or how we see people or how we see even circumstances in our life, but how we see God, our picture of God, the thing that comes to our mind when we think about God, A.W. Tozer says, is the most important thing about us. How you and how I see God really, really matters. It actually dictates behaviors. It dictates how you interact in relationships. It dictates what you do with your money. It will dictate how you raise your kids and how you will handle your kids after you've raised them. It will dictate literally everything about you. How you see God, it really, really matters. And as we've kind of journeyed through this this season of looking at how God pursues his people through the story of scripture. We started out in January talking about creation and the beautiful kind of creation God has designed within us, but also to walk in with him. Then we talked about the fall and the effects of sin and and chaos and brokenness in the world. And then this month, for the next couple weeks, we're talking about what it means to be redeemed people, what it means to experience the redemption and and the bringing back together of that initial design and that initial relationship. And so we're asking the question this month, where do we find hope? Like ultimately in this life, where do we find hope? Where, where can we place our eternal future, our destiny in? And I wanna take you to a passage that for me, maybe for you, is really hard to see. It's really hard to see. It's really hard to perceive. It's hard to engage. But, but if we don't learn how to engage and truly understand and see what's happening in the story, uh, we will not see God correctly. We will actually end up making God in our own image. So I want to take you to the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. If you have a Bible or, or a device, pull it out, Matthew 27, and we're going to start in verse 27. This is kind of in the crucifixion process uh, before Jesus goes to be, to be killed on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 27, here's what the, the writer of Matthew says. He says, Then the governor's soldier, soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. This is hundreds of, of soldiers here. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. The story is said in the praetorium, and the story I just read to you, 99% chance you've heard before, or you're familiar with that on some level. You've heard the name Jesus or been around church long enough to to know kind of the elements of the crucifixion story. But in the praetorium where Matthew sets this up, it is this massive Roman structure, essentially kind of these walls around creating this inner courtyard where, again, as Matthew points out, would literally be legions upon legions. So uh, around six to 700 Roman soldiers would have been in this praetorium at the time that Jesus and the other criminals who are about to be crucified would have been. 
And in this praetorium, there would have been multiple things going on. And that's why it's so hard for, for you and I sitting where we sit to put ourselves in the story, right? So you read this and you're wondering, never been to Jerusalem, never seen a crucifixion, that all this language is very out of, out of context for us. So let's bring ourselves into the story then. So if you walk into the praetorium, you're going to see the hundreds of soldiers gathered around preparing for the crucifixion event. You would, you would get put on the ground as someone who's about to be crucified or led to Golgotha, and you would probably see in the stone etchings, almost like a, a tic-tac-toe board, this, this game called the King's Game where literally Roman soldiers who are about to perform the crucifixion would play this kind of sophisticated dice game in order to divvy up your possessions. You would feel the mental exhaustion, if you're Jesus in this moment, of being on your knees in the praetorium knowing that you just endured a full night of these fake trials and harassments and betrayals by your very closest disciples. This is a setting Matthew puts us in before we get to the cross itself. In the praetorium, they would have gathered around those who were about to be crucified and, and brought out with this Roman torture device called the verberatio. And the verberatio is literally this whipped cords full of bone chips and metal, metal uh, plates literally designed when it hits your back to rip skin. And so Jesus would have received these beatings and lashings just like any other crucifix, crucifixion uh, recipient would have received. Most people at the end of this process in the crucifixion process, at the end of this stage in the crucifixion process, would have likely passed out or possibly died before they ever get to the cross because of how torturous and debilitating this is on your body. Then they'd make Jesus walk 2.5 miles with a massive wooden tree on his back, his own crucifixion device, and on the way there, it's so heavy for him, it literally says they pass it off to someone else. They grab someone from the crowd and say, hey, we got to get this somewhere, and we're not carrying it, and this guy is not able to physically. They'd get to this ancient rock quarry dugout called Golgotha, place of the skull, and they'd begin to nail these crucifix, crucifixion people to the cross. Now, particularly harmful about this and shameful about this in the Jewish mind, which Matthew's writing in, is that Jesus would have been crucified naked. And by being crucified naked, it was especially shameful for Jewish people. Romans who were crucified, convicted felons, and, and people that had received the death penalty didn't even have to do that. This was Jewish only, exclusive for rabbis and Jewish people just like Jesus. It would have been incredibly shameful and, and humiliating. From there, he would be laid down and placed onto this wooden tree that's all hewn and, and rough. It's not smooth. It's literally tearing at the wounds that you've inflicted from earlier in the praetorium. Your hands are nailed down. You can't wipe blood or sweat away from your eyes. You cannot swat the flies away that are trying to get in to your open wounds. You're unable to control any bodily functions that happen in the next 48 hours, and likely within 48 hours to 72 hours, you would eventually pass away from dehydration or suffocation. Let me just remind you, this is a real person and a real story. This is how Matthew depicts Jesus. Now, as you're reading that, the reason it's so hard to engage is because what it does often when we're reading this passage or these stories, especially in this lead up to Easter, what happens is 
we like to detach ourselves from what's happening because we know where the story's going. It's like, can you just skip to Easter? <laughs> Let's just get to resurrection. Why do we need to see this? Why? I mean, can't we just skip over that part? And you would think if I'm a gospel writer, if I'm Matthew, I'm sitting down and, and I've got the task of writing down and capturing all of Jesus' life, ministry, death, and eventual resurrection and ascension, you would think I would depict this part of the story with Jesus as a victim, with Jesus as someone who made it out, who survived the pain of crucifixion. And you'd probably say, if I'm writing this, I'd be pointing out, here are all the enemies, here are all the people that did Jesus wrong. But who was Jesus's real enemy at the cross? Have you ever thought about this question? Who was Jesus really fighting at the cross? Who was Jesus's real enemy? I mean, if, it's, if I'm writing Matthew's gospel, I'm kind of pointing out everybody. I'd be like, Pilate, look at his role. He literally washes his hands clean, said, this isn't my problem, and lets an innocent Jewish rabbi go to the cross. Maybe you'd say it's, it was the disciples who betrayed him. People like Peter, who stuck with him for years, who'd left everything behind, and yet in the moment of crisis, turns away and said, no, 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 not my problem, not my rabbi. Or, or maybe it was the Roman guards, the ones who were overseeing and enjoying the process of crucifying an innocent man. Maybe he, they were the enemies. Maybe it was the empire. Maybe you look at Rome and you're like, it's your problem. The system itself is corrupt and unjust. How dare you put to death Jesus? But Matthew doesn't depict, and the, the rest of the New Testament does not depict those as the real enemy at the cross. The real enemy at the cross was death itself was sin itself, was, was the broken gap itself that Jesus is, is restoring and showing us what God is really like. See, the cross, as you read the story of the cross, it's actually a victory story. It's a story of, of God overcoming sin, overcoming death, so that you and I do not face that pain anymore. The cross is a victory story, which is why if I misunderstand the cross, I will be prone to misunderstanding God himself. And I am so guilty of this. I mean, I have done this for years over and over. It's a temptation I have to, to try to detach God from the pain of suffering, detach him from death, detach him from the real things that I face. But what ends up happening is if I do that, if I'm prone to do that, I will misunderstand God himself and I will make the cross a formula or a theory. And that's not what the cross is. Brian Zahn, who's kind of a pastor, uh, theologian, writer, puts it this way. I don't come to the cross for a formula or a theory. I come to the cross to find God, to find God. Because in the cross, as weird as it sounds, we have the clearest picture of what God is really like. Another way to put it is when I want to see God, which all of us probably are in this room on some level because we want that, but we want to see God and experience God, we need to see the cross. We need to behold it. We need to reckon with it. We need to engage it, and we need to understand it. Because what happens is so many of us, and I get tempted this way too, I go through something hard in life, and what I start to believe is that God doesn't know what it's like. 
God, you don't know what it's like to raise a newborn. You never were married. Like I'll say, like internally, I'm thinking that. I'm like, he doesn't know what it's like, man. This kid is keeping me up like crazy. Like there's no way God can understand. Or, or maybe you go through something more serious than that. You, you face a diagnosis you did not want and you're just on the cusp of retirement. God doesn't know what that's like. God doesn't know, understand. He doesn't, he's not in touch with that. Or you face a surgery you didn't want to face. Or you face a financial setback that seems too insurmountable for you to overcome. And you say things like, and we think things like, God, you don't get it. You don't get it. You don't understand. And what the cross says, actually, I do get it. When I want to, to see God, when I want to see him move, I need to see the cross. And at the cross, I see a God who is willing to suffer, willing to forgive, willing to be humiliated, willing to be taken advantage of, willing to, to, to let the powers at be actually overwhelm him in this moment. And it reorients my thinking about what God is like. When I want to see God, I need to see the cross. One of my favorite interactions in the Gospels is where the Apostle Peter, who goes on to write big chunks of the New Testament, who ends up betraying Jesus in the moments of the story we just read, he has this conversation with Jesus. They're in the boat. He's seen Jesus teach amazing things and do miracles. And then he decides, you know what? Jesus keeps talking about the fact he has to die and go to a cross. What if we just circumvented that and skipped it and he didn't do that? Like, what if he just set up the kingdom of Israel and restored all of our military hopes right now? What if he just did that? And so he pitches this idea to Jesus. And Jesus says kind of the famous line, get behind me. Somebody know this? Like Satan, he's like, get behind me, Satan. It's like, what? that seems intense, even for God. Like, how did, why would you say that to Peter? That's kind of mean. But his point is, Peter is offering him something that Satan wanted to offer him early in Jesus's life and ministry. It was the temptation to take power even before suffering, to skip the cross, to skip suffering and just go right to the end. But for some reason, this is not the way it was supposed to be. When I want to see God, I... I need to see the cross. I need to know that there's a God who, who suffers with me. I need to know that there's a God who understands when I feel like no one else gets it, that, that he knows what it's like when I feel all alone in that room, when, when I'm walking out of the counselor's office, when I'm having another tense moment with my kid. He, I need to know God understands. When I want to see God move and I want to see him and get a clear picture of him, I need to see. I need to look at the cross. A couple uh, weeks ago, Lindsay and I were at a concert. You should all cheer there just because the last two years, all right? But Exactly. Thank you. I made it. We were at a concert, and uh, we were there, and it was uh, a guy named John Mark McMillan who kind of famously wrote How He Loves, but has written a lot of powerful stuff even after that, and he's a great musician, and, and I was just amped to be like at a live concert in general. I was like, I've watched so many YouTube videos of concerts, it's like mind-numbing. I can't wait to go see one. So we're there, and the band starts to fire up. They're singing. They kind of get to the middle of the set where they bring it down. It becomes more intimate, and he's like, I want to play this song, and uh, he's playing the song, and I was like, I, I don't. I think I've heard this once or twice. I don't really know much about it, but I was excited to be there. We had some friends along with us who, who we really love, and they love live music, and they, they play guitar and stuff. So we're, we're sitting there just soaking in the music. It's amazing. And all of a sudden, this line, he says it, and I can barely kind of understand, but he, luckily he said it twice, so I could understand what he was saying, I, and, and it hit me. The line was, 
Uh, I've got no answers for heartbreaks or cancer, but a suffering Savior who walks with me. I've got no answers for heartbreaks or cancers, but a suffering Savior who walks with me. And I sat there, and I have not gone through cancer. I've not gone through what I would describe as major heartbreak. But I'm looking two seats down from me, and my friend who's sitting there for the last seven years has battled lymphoma, has dealt with actual cancer, has dealt with actual radiation and chemotherapy, and lives his life in these six-month spans between tests and scans and check-ins with his cancer doctors. And when he sang that line, it hit me differently. I've got no answers for heartbreaks or cancers, but a suffering Savior who walks with, walks with me. And this is really the message of the cross. This is the message of, of Jesus lying there, receiving these punishments. And, and the way that Matthew writes this is not Jesus as a victim, not him as someone who's just another victim to the Roman Empire. The way Matthew and the rest of the New Testament refers to this story we just read, which we would feel like is the end, is actually a triumph. It's actually victory. It's actually, it's an overcoming of sin, overcoming of death. See, there's something in ancient Roman history that would have happened. So for basically the, the past hundred years before this moment in Matthew 27, Roman officials, Roman leaders, kind of the, the top emperors would have literally, as they pillaged and destroyed and overwhelmed city after city, would go through the same city streets Jesus had to walk through, parading their spoils of war. Like all of their, the money, the, the people, the slaves, the livestock, whatever it is, they'd come back and say, look what we have done. Look how we have triumphed. Look how we've overcome. Rome is the greatest that will, empire that will ever be on the face of the earth. This would have been a common thing. Everyone watching the crucifixion would have known, man, this looks a lot like the Roman triumph. And Matthew's point in writing this and sharing this with us is to point out that it actually is. That what looked like the end is not the end. What it looked like Jesus has lost his ability and lost his strength and lost his power is actually his greatest point of strength, his greatest point of power of love and, and of forgiveness for, for you and I. See, I was thinking about kind of a modern day equivalent to this and what our kind of we're watching unfold, obviously, is, is someone like Vladimir Putin would get the Roman way. Like that, that version of triumph makes sense to a person like him. But Jesus, he leads a totally different way. He, he demonstrates power and strength through suffering and through forgiving love. It's like, I wish Jesus was a little bit more Putin-like some days, but he's not. I don't get that option. I don't, I, don't, I don't receive that option from him. Another way to put it, John Seahack, who's kind of a biblical scholar, writes that being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, the Christ form or cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. It's actually under the scars and the wounds and the beating that we get the clearest picture that's what God is like. This, this is what our, our Savior is like. This is what our Creator is like. And, and it, it starts to change everything because no longer can God just be kind of my cosmic vending machine. No longer does God get to be just my divine judge who I think about like when I do something really bad. 
He, he becomes someone who literally, like the song says, walks with me. He is, he is acquainted, scriptures say, with my grief and the sorrow and the, the difficult parts of life. He gets it. And, and to me, Sihak's uh, quote just stands out because that in that moment, what we just read, Matthew 27, if I want to see God, I got to look at the cross right in my face. I have to look at it because this is God revealed. Uh, some of you were around, uh, which is saying that you're wiser than me, in like the late 60s. Anybody remember the late 60s? Okay, so half of our room. Appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> you should say this with glee because to me, what happened is really interesting. So I, again, I kind of like history. I'm, I enjoy reading back and how, especially how God has moved throughout history. Late 60s, this movement starts to take place among young people. So you have Woodstock, you have the sexual revolution, you have all these things happening, but something else starts to happen in the 60s. There, there begun, begins to be these groups of hippies and rock bands and former addicts and, and all these things who begin to get a clear picture of Jesus. They begin to interact. People begin to share the, the good news of the real Jesus with them and, and their lives start to get turned around and changed. Uh, they, they coined this the Jesus People Movement. And as you look back at history, really in America at least, this was probably the last, or the most recent, I should say, most significant move of God across like a whole country, of just people coming to know Jesus and repenting from sin and turning to a new way. And, and what I think that's really interesting is the name initially started as kind of a, a joke, Kind of like Christian did. It was like those little Christs out there. Like they're trying to be Jesus. This is like those, those hippies are literally trying to be Jesus people on their Volkswagens and, and with their guitars. Like they're trying to be Jesus people. Like they're so obsessed with Jesus. They're so obsessed with this person. They're, they're talking about the cross and forgiveness and uh, they're stopping their, their addictions. Like it's crazy. And this starts to happen over and over again, like across, there's literally communities and campuses and, and churches you could go to today that are a, a, a fruit, a byproduct of this movement sweeping through. Why, why did that happen? I mean, initially it probably started, and we don't know for sure, but probably started with a small group of people who got a clear picture of what Jesus was really like. And when you get a clear picture, it's really hard to keep that private, it's really hard to just stay internal and just and thank God for what he can do for you. On the other side, I was sitting with a friend. Uh, well, I should say sitting. Zoom call. Is that sitting? I don't know. Who knows? At this point, it feels like I'm sitting with them. I'm sitting with them, and they're uh, down in their office, and, and they, they work with missionaries all around the world. And so I had a couple questions just about ways that we could continue growing in that as a church and engage people uh, across the world. And as it opens up, like what opportunities are there? And so I was hoping for like a kind of three-point answer. That's how I think. It's quite logical. I'm like, could you just give me like a couple points and, and I'll take them and I'll apply them and we'll talk about them with our leadership team and all this kind of stuff. And he's the kind of guy, because he's smart, is he wouldn't give me any answers. He's like, let me tell you some stories. <laughs> let me give you like 10 stories about this and about how God moves and some potential options. And so we shared some stories. He shared, like our, our church is part of what's called the Wesleyan Church. This is a denomination started a couple hundred years ago. And, and in that, really in the late 1800s, a similar thing started to happen as, as people, especially young people, got awakened and, and began to really step away from their lifestyle and towards Jesus. And they start to, to go around the world. It's like this thing happens where like 
there's other countries that do not know the name of Jesus and don't have access to the gospel or the scriptures in their language. And they start to go, they start to leave America and go all over the world. And one of those places was Sierra Leone. And Sierra Leone now in kind of Northern Africa is probably one of the most vibrant Christian countries in the world. It's, it's, it's blowing up and even government leaders are starting uh, to lead and, and, and open things with prayer and just like really different, very different things. But he said, you know, it's fascinating. You can go to Sierra Leone and he went there a few years ago. There's a small Wesleyan Bible college where they still train pastors. They still train leaders of the church. And, and you can go there and kind of on the plot of land behind where the school is, there's this small, very simple cemetery. And you could go to that cemetery and you can walk around. And, and really it's, it's basically all the graves of the missionaries who went there serving from Sierra Le- to Sierra Leone in that day. He said, but what really struck me is I got there and I'm looking at him and I'm looking at the ages, one after another, after another. There's not one gravestone in that cemetery with the age of over 30. It was young people. It was people whose lives had been radically changed. They had a clear picture of Jesus and it led them to a totally different life. It wasn't retired people who were sitting around. I was like, I don't have anything to do. Maybe I should go to Sierra Leone. It was people who had like their life in front of them and decided to give it all up in, in the name of, of Jesus. He told me another story, this family kind of in the same time frame as the Jesus people movement get, get like their hearts gripped by Jesus and, and say, we cannot just stay in our comfortable house and, and neighborhood. We need to go. We need to be a part of the solution, part of, of spreading this around the world. And so they go and uh, they, they find themselves in Medellin, Colombia, which at the time, again, if you watch Narcos or anything else, like, you know, that was kind of a tense time in, in Colombia. It's like the drug cartel is on the rise. There are literally murders in the streets. It's like a very dark place to be, but they feel like God's calling them to go. And so they go, but they quickly find out, hey, we are not wanted here. They do not want us talking about Jesus. They do not, us, not want us starting churches or spreading the gospel or any of this stuff. And so this small family, I think of three or four, uh, begin to be really concerned for their life. And, and so they're, they're waking up wondering, like, is this a day like the mob or a cartel is going to come after us or, or, or do things to us? And they had already kind of harassed them for the, for the last couple of months. And, and so they're, they're sitting there eating breakfast one morning. And they decide, hey, we got to go out and do our stuff for the day. We got to go out and, and, and kind of live on mission together. We're, we've got we've got responsibility. So they say, you know what? We're going we're gonna to go do it. Just I know we're scared. I know we're going to go for it. But they notice as they look out the apartment window, there's this enormous mob that is created at the bottom of the apartment building. And the dad kind of clicks in, hey, I know what's about to happen here. I know what's about to happen. And so he kind of rallies his family and just says, hey, there's a mob outside. We, we, have, we know that we got to still go. Like we got to act in courage and in boldness and, and in faith. And so we're just going to go but we're going to link arms. We're going to go out together. So this family of of four links arms together, makes their way down the stairs and begins walking out of the apartment building. And what happens, they get out of the apartment building and this mob gasps, literally audible gasps from all the people gathered around. So the mob was gathered there because the day before they had poisoned all of their food, hoping that they would have killed them overnight and, or that morning and they could go in and get the bodies in their possessions. Why, why do people do stuff like that? Why, why, why does a family of four say, we need to go? 
Why, why does a college student say, you know what, I have a career path, I've got vocation options, I'm going to go to Sierra Leone. Why, why did God just get a hold of these hippies in the Jesus movement and, and, and literally take over uh, some, some strongholds of darkness in those communities? I think if you ask why, if you get down to the core why, it's because they had a clear vision of what God was really like. And it changed everything for them. It literally shaped futures and shaped nations because they're willing to do that. It's the same reason. It's like, why do we do hand-to-hand? Why do we provide food for kids? It's not just nice, but why do we do it? Like, why do we do baptism? Why do we celebrate every time someone takes that step and comes out of the water in baptism? Why, why do we invite people to church? Like, don't people have enough things to do on a weekend? Why would I spend my time inviting someone to say, hey, come, come sit with me, be here with me? Why would we do things like two services and stretch our teams and volunteers and, and our resources? Why would we do any of that? I think the answer when you look at Matthew 27 is obvious because, because we have a clear picture of what God is like. And when you have a clear picture, when you know, when you really want to see God, you have to look at the cross and it starts to change everything. I want to read, uh, kind of in closing here, Colossians 2. It's a verse that for me has been one that's really stuck out for a long time. But Colossians 2, this is what Paul writes to the church in Colossae about the cross. He says, when you were dead because of the things you had done wrong and because your body wasn't circumcised, God made you alive with Christ and forgave all the things you'd done wrong. He destroyed the record of the debt we owed with its requirements, the law, we talked about that a few weeks ago, that worked out against us. He canceled it by nailing it to the cross. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he exposed them to public disgrace by leading them in a triumphal parade. If I'm looking at Matthew 27, I'm not looking at Jesus saying he's disarming rulers and authorities and and leading them in a triumphal parade. But this is exactly how the New Testament talks about redemption, this, this story, is that it actually was not Jesus as a victim, it's Jesus as a victor. See, this, Paul's point, is what true kings are like. This is what true leadership is like. This is what true messiahs are like. And so, I want to ask you a very simple question that's going to mess with your head. A question that, that if you let it, if you let it sit and you let it simmer, it, it will start to, to get you towards what we're talking about. And the question is very simple. Where is your picture of God off? Where's your picture of God off? Because all of us grew up in some way with maybe a blurred, distorted vision of what God is really like. What Matthew's point in writing this whole gospel story and making us see the brutality and the humiliation of the cross and, and Jesus' response as a suffering God is to say, this is the truest picture. You will never get a better picture of God than right here, right there, right in Matthew 27. And to be honest, it's way easier for me to sit here and, and look at my life and say, man, it'd be better if God was just kind of out there and removed. I don't have to deal with him all the time. It's just kind of this cosmic uh, genie I can get to when I need him. But, but that's not what Matthew 27 is. It's, it's a very human, very broken, very disfigured person who in the same way becomes the triumph, becomes a victory that you and I need and, and that you and I crave the answer to that question, where's my picture of God off, is actually the answer to where you may be missing part of your redemption story. Part of something that maybe is undone or is broken or, or jacked up or a, a relationship that's not where it needs to be or an addiction that's, that's secret and it's there and you know it's there. 
What may be hindering that is just having a clear picture of God, which will lead to a different kind of life. I'm going to ask you, maybe you're like, I don't even know where to start with that question. I don't even know. Can I ask you to do something a little bit more simple first? I'm going to ask you from from now till Easter, I'm just going to boldly ask, especially if you call Center Church home, I'm going to boldly ask you to engage this season. There's a lot of other things we could be doing. There's a lot of other things we could be pursuing. I'm gonna ask you to engage scripture. I'm gonna ask you to invite some people. I'm gonna ask you to to consider and pray about baptism. I'm gonna ask you to to maybe step into serving. I'm gonna ask you to keep showing up. Why? Because at the end of the day, what this, this thing reminds us of, what the church reminds us of is what God is really like. His desire for all of humanity to know the clearest picture of who he is. And so I don't know where you are today. I I don't know what your answer is to that. I can't prescribe a bunch of behaviors or steps for you. And and I don't want to do that. Because ultimately what what we all need is is a moment. And we're going to create some time, even the next couple songs, for you to have some space just to to interact and and to respond and reflect on this picture of who God is. So I'd love to pray for you. And then we're going to do that together. Jesus, thank you that you... uh, You do not ask for perfection. You do not ask for a moral checklist before we can come to you with questions and with doubts and with our desires. But you simply ask us to come. And so Jesus, I pray right now, as we sit in this moment, as we respond to your Holy Spirit and your your loving presence, God, would you open us up to just see you in a different way, to see you in a different light, that you'd clarify our picture of you, that you'd chip away and remove things that we think about you or believe about you that are actually not who you are. They're things and idols we've put on. So God, I pray you just give us a clear vision of the true Jesus today, what you are really like, your desire for us. And we thank you that you are a God who suffers and loves and walks with us. We surrender it all to you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why don't you stand, church? We're going to worship him together and respond.